We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. Today, we're going to get into Joshua chapter 7 and chapter 8. It is a lofty goal, and I'm not sure it can be done, and I don't want to overdo it. So, I'm going to say certainly Joshua 7, hopefully Joshua 8, depends on how things go. Um, But before we jump into that, I want to ask for the blessing of the Lord upon his word and upon our engagement with it. Lord, we just look to you. There is no one like you, God. The plans that you have in your heart, the uh, wisdom and power that you have to bring it to pass, Lord, it is uh, amazing and invigorating to be part of your glorious plan in the earth. We're just so thankful, thankful for joining, um, allowing us to join you in this place, God. We ask you for your voice, God. We look to you in your word. We're opening our Bibles and reading them, and we're asking you to speak to us in this episode, and we're asking you to do just that. My inadequacies and insignificance before you, God, is, is, let's face it, it's, it's a joke the way I am before you. And so, God, we just lay all pride down before you, lay all of our ways that we think we know, and we have no clue that we're blind Lord, we're asking you to, to stand forth from your word. Open it to us today. Pray, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver your word, to encourage your saints, to give them a vision of how glorious you are in your word just by speaking it and looking at it and, and adoring you in it. God, we ask you for your Holy Spirit's ministry inside of my mind and my heart now, that you would speak through me to your people, God, that your people would weigh what I'm saying, that they would run to the Bible and weigh what I'm saying. Do that they would not take my word for it, but that they would know your word, God, and what is in accordance with it that the spirit of truth would be activated at a whole nother level of discernment, God, by the working of your great grace in our lives, God. We, we love you. We adore you, Jesus. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. There is no one like you. You alone stand enthroned above heaven and above all of the earth and above everything underneath the earth. You are enthroned above it. And we, we open our hearts to your word and we ask to plow up the deep things that need to be plowed up in our lives and plant the seed of your word deep in us in good ground. 
We just ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, open your word to us. Amen. Not really sure where to start. I guess a couple of points of review, what we've been doing for the last few weeks. We started out in Genesis 3 with the serpent getting Eve to eat the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And what that fruit does is offers a whole nother level of perception and awake, um, being awakened to uh, new realities that were previously unseen. There was a way to think about the world, to understand the world in a way that they didn't understand before. And when they ate the fruit, they had this new awareness. It was the knowledge of good and evil that was the lure of Satan, this um, up until then hidden knowledge that was hidden from them. Satan lures them into eating the fruit. They become, they, they, they enjoy a cognition that they didn't have before. And it's a cognition that's like God's. It's a God-like cognition. And so it was that at that point that Satan took, usurped Adam's place on the earth and has been ruling through Adam's race ever since as the prince of the power of the air. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came in the form of a man with flesh and blood and preached the kingdom of God and demonstrated unthinkable miracles again and again and was betrayed by his friend. He was rejected by his people and he was suffer and he suffered under the, the Roman government, suffered the fate of, of, of common criminals who would be executed. He suffered the fate of the lowliest of criminals. And it was his work on the cross, his resurrection, that offers a new way to God, a new way of relating to God through the blood of Jesus. And anyone who wants, anyone who can recognize the beauty of this truth, anyone whose heart is made alive by the reality of this God can come Anyone who recognizes it, who says, you know what? If there's a God, that's him. If I, was going, if I was going to worship a God, that would be the God of Jesus Christ. And it is this man who comes and dies and is resurrected on the third day and then ascends to heaven and is enthroned until he returns to take what is rightfully his, this earth. But before he does that, he's going to let a few things play out that we need to be aware of, because as they play out, it's going to be pretty offensive, quite frankly, on, on a lot of levels. But God promises grace and power for his church to overcome in this era in this age, this end of the age drama. 
So Adam, so I need to go back to Adam and Eve here. We were talking about Genesis 3 there. And then um, we talked about Genesis 11, where uh, mankind uh, became one and wanted to re-enter the heaven. They, they, had been, they had been evicted from Eden, and they wanted to again take their place and break into the heavenly realm. So they built a Babel, which means gate of God or gateway of the gods. And it would be through that gateway that mankind would enter into the heaven and proclaim himself a God. And his name would go on with great renown, right? And, and God stops this. He says, boy, if I don't stop this thing, they're just going to keep doing what they're doing. And then eventually anything that they imagine will become possible to them. They will actually succeed at what they're trying to do, to build a gate of God, a gateway of the gods. So God says, no, 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 no. I just flooded this place in Genesis chapter 6. I'm not going to go ahead and let this thing play out quite yet. I'm going to, in his great mercy and wisdom, confuse the languages. And ever since then, we've had a whole bunch of languages that get fewer and fewer all the time until one language will emerge again in the earth. And we will all speak one language before we get there, God says, "Hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna break this thing up. I'm gonna I'm gonna send these. I'm gonna disperse the people. I'm gonna confuse the languages, and immediately solves the solves the problem. The people can't work together. They can't think together. They are frustrated in their ability and attempt to communicate. So that what they're trying to build cannot be built." They need this unity of thought, and so the the nations disperse. Then we uh, God, God chooses Abraham, and one of his uh, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son Jacob. Jacob falls asleep in a field, and has an encounter with God. But this time, it's not a burning bush like it was with Moses. This time, it's a staircase that goes from heaven to earth, and there's angels ascending and descending on it. And it's a cool dream. Jacob wakes up and he says, you know, God is in this place so much. He's struck so deeply that he names the place Bethel, which means the, the house of God, the presence of God. And this deep, deep, deep revelation that God gives to Jacob is meant to point forward to someone else who would come along and say to his disciple, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus says, I am the staircase that Jacob saw. So there we see a di diametrically opposite approach to spirituality. In one, you have a Babel, the, gate of, the gateway of the gods, where man is trying to build up into heaven and take his place among the gods. But with Bethel, or the presence of God, who Jesus said, I am the Bethel that Jacob saw, that is a very different thing. That's not humans reaching up. That's a loving God reaching down in the form of his son, Jesus, saying, anyone who wants to enter this gate, the true gate of God, must enter through one man, Jesus Christ, a Jewish man who grew up in Nazareth. This is the Son of God. 
the Messiah, the Deliverer. And if you look at his words, if you look with an open mind and consider what he said, if you love the truth, you will know that this Jesus is Messiah. So then we fast forward a little bit to Exodus 20, where uh, Moses has this incredible encounter with God on Mount Sinai, and God gives him, he gives him the commandments that, that the, the nation of Israel must live by. And he comes out right off of the bat with, you should not make any carved images of anything in creation and bow down to it and worship it. That's, a, that's, that's, that's rule number one. You know, we, they, we see, you know, this drama playing out and, and God says, hey, I just had this huge conversation with Moses. I wrote these things on the tablets. Go show the people what's on these tablets. Ru- uh, idea, main idea number one, do not make a carved image of something in creation and bow down to it as if it's your God. Do not do that. Rule number one. Kind of a surprising rule number one over the last few decades where we're just kind of like, so wait, um, this one's we're actually good with. You know, you know, we're we're you know we have trouble with uh, you know speaking the name of the Lord in vain or you know uh, lying or, or whatever else. But the one that we were, were good with was number one. You know, hey, number one, don't carve something from creation and bow down to it as if it's your God. Okay, good, got that one. I I think my record is perfect on that particular point. Don't ask me about lying, you know, don't ask me about speaking the Lord's name in vain, but I know I got that one. I got that one locked. It's a strange one, but we're heading potentially into a period of time when that command will become the greatest, most offensive commandment ever. Because we're entering into a day when our machines are becoming so intelligent that they're beginning to tell us what to do. And we're obeying, and a lot of times obeying the machine means better success. So if your life is built on success and you find out that if you obey a machine, you'll have more success, that can be a very dangerous, dangerous place to be. So you're not led about by your own will. You're not led about by a loving God, a merciful Savior. You're being led about by a cold, dead calculator. A cold, dead calculator. Yet, for those who are getting more and more comfortable doing exactly what their machine is telling them to do, it won't be very long until we create a machine that says it's our God and that we must worship it. Sounds crazy. But that is the picture, at least what I think is the picture when you look at Revelation 13. That is the picture of the decades ahead. So now, I'm going to skip forward 
just a little bit more here and jump into Joshua chapter 7. Now, just to go back in and review just quickly with the story of, of Joshua, right? So you got Moses at Sinai, the people get there, like God has this amazing drama play out in, in Egypt where he, he sends 10 plagues and he sets the whole thing up perfectly and he just de- demonstrates his sovereign glory over Egypt again and again and again. And Egypt can do nothing before him but just suffer. He leads the Israelites out in, during the night of this most horrific judgment he leads them through a short uh, walk, really, when, when, you, when you look at the entire picture of what it turned into, a short walk from Egypt to the Red Sea, in which he split the sea so that they could walk through. And then when Pharaoh's army followed after, he closed the sea on Pharaoh's army. And revival broke out, right? I mean, God does this, all this amazing stuff just to bring the people to Sinai so that they can worship Him there. And when they get there, they decide, this thing is way too crazy for us to actually do this. We're, we're pretty sure if we even try this, we're all goners because God's going to kill us. And so they, they do not meet God up in the mountain, but Moses does. He receives the commandments. They come out, and through basically just to boil it down, just through, through disobedience and unfaithfulness, God says, I will not give the land that I promised to this generation. He says, I'm still going to give the land that I promised. Nothing can stop that, but I didn't say it has to be to this generation. In fact, he says very poignantly, he says, the people who saw my signs, those who saw me in my greatest uh, demonstrations of my power, those aren't going to be the ones who get in to the promised land. Think about that. You know, how we wish God would um, act in these mighty demonstrations of his power. And if, you know, if and when we get to see that, you know, it, it, it will be, it'll be amazing. But these people, these people saw the miracles, but it wasn't enough. They acted perpetually unfaithful. And then when they came up to the promised land, they sent in uh, 12 spies. Ten of them come back and say, no way. This is not going to work. The land is great, but there's, two, there's these huge people in there, and we're, they're going to kill us. As soon as we walk into their property there, they're going to kill us. So 10 of them are like, you know what? No, this is mm-mm, too scary. There are two, the, uh, it says, you know, Caleb um, and Joshua were the two who came back with good reports. And it was they who led the children of Israel into the promised land. And, that, and then through this campaign of taking town after town after town, we come to Joshua 7, and you got to remember, as God is leading his people, he's, he's leading them very directly, and he's, make, he's making a point that he wants to say, like, hey, I'm acting so directly here that I want you to pay attention because I'm making a point. And it's up, for, it's up to 
us to, to ask God so that we would understand not just the story being told, but what, what does this story point towards? Because there was another Joshua coming, a greater Joshua, a warrior, a great leader, a savior, one who could lead his people through any battle. In fact, the name Joshua is, is basically what Jesus was, Jesus was named after this guy, Joshua. Jesus was named after Joshua. Wow. I mean, that is a very, very profound idea. That Jesus, when they came up, that, that God would say, I want his name to be Joshua. Yeshua. What does that say about the book of Joshua? There's anything that God would say like, hey, pay attention to this, then pay attention to Joshua, Yeshua. This is the name that I'm referring, I'm, I'm creating a reference point to. I'm surprised we don't spend more time thinking about the significance of picking the name Yeshua in reference to the book of Joshua. So, we know there was a greater Joshua coming, a Messiah who would lead his people and take the promised land. And then the question becomes, how, do, how, does, how is the promised land taken? And that is where we actually get to see some pretty amazing parallels between what we read in Joshua and what we read in Revelation. It sounds strange to make that connection, Joshua and Revelation, but those connections are there. And just think about the larger motif. Joshua leading the people of Israel to take the land, and Jesus leading his church in the end times to bring heaven to earth, to enter in to the promised land. It is very profound when you think of the connections between Joshua and Revelation. And it doesn't just work out in the larger motif. It breaks out in many of the details of the story as well. And that's where I want to kind of try to drill into in this episode, and there's so much material that I may need to make this podcast a part one and a part two. We'll see how long I go here, and we'll see how far I get. I don't rehearse any of this. I basically just kind of run through it in my mind, and then just turn on a mic and ask God for mercy and start talking and, and reading. So that's my, that's my strategy here. That's what I'm planning on doing. We're opening up in Joshua chapter 7. And uh, chapter 7 opens with a brief overview. And I don't want to read through this entire chapter because you guys will get very bored with me reading stuff. I don't want to just read stuff, but I do want to highlight a few things. The first thing I want to highlight is the overview of the chapter 
in verse 1. It says, The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took, uh, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So that, that's the overview. Okay, so chapter 7, we know that Achan had had somehow identified himself with devoted things. And it's, it's important to understand devoted things doesn't mean like in like maybe in the New Testament when you're reading and he talks about things that are devoted to demons or devoted like, like that. That's not what's, what's happening here. When, it, when, when Joshua chapter 7 talks about the devoted things, it means the, the things that God has devoted for destruction. So when God would give, give Joshua very clear rules of engagement, when he went into a city, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, he would, he would break out how he wanted the, tr- the city treated. I want the people treated like this. I want their enemies, animals treated like this. I want their money treated like that. You know, it was categories for how to treat different things because it was the it was the judgment of the Lord being released in the earth, and He was judging them on on, on different things and on different levels. But some would get greater measures of wrath, and some would get less. And so we have Achan in Joshua 7 taking some things from one of the cities that he was specifically told, don't take those things. I want you to destroy them. So God says, hey, those things right there, those things I say, do not take those things. You will destroy them. I'm devoting those things for destruction. He says, do not identify yourself with the thing that I have devoted to destruction. That thing is sin. Do not identify with it. Repent of it. Get rid of it. I will change you. I'll have mercy on you. I will give you power that you didn't know you could have. If you believe in me and cling to my word, I will answer your every need. But do not identify yourself with the, 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 the things that I have devoted to destruction. And so that is basically the premise of, of, of the, the overview of chapter 7. But cha- uh, it, 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 it begins with the overview, but then it, it moves into the, the next campaign on the list. And this next city... This is right after Jericho. In fact, the things that Achan takes are from Jericho. He, he, he finds something that was a, uh, you can look in, in verse 20, uh, 20 when uh, Achan confesses to Joshua. He says, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. So Achan says, I, we, were, we were all busy, you know, just completely destroying that place. And I, everybody turned their back. I had one second. I, I, I saw some stuff. That I was like, wow, it'd be nice to have that. And let's face it. I mean, we're here. Who's going to know if I take some stuff? You know, I mean, so what? It's 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 some coins of a of a dead guy, right? We just we killed him, we killed his family. Everything, you know, everything's wiped out. It's sitting there. Do we really need to throw it in the fire? God says, yes, you do. 
And the reason why you do is because God is demonstrating his justice in the earth and saying, hey, when I say treat a city like this, you need to treat it like that because this is what my justice demands. You guys are my, you guys are my, my hands and feet of my justice. When I look into the earth and when I see human beings doing the things that human beings do to other human beings to destroy them, it I am aware of this and it angers me and I will answer with swift justice. And when I answer, the justice is right. And so what Aiken didn't realize was how well aware of the subject and how deeply God cared about this idea. Aiken didn't understand that deep in God's heart, there is no place for sin. And he is totally aware of everything. And he judges with perfect judgment. And so Aiken has to has to be the 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 the, the man and his family and his you know I'm not sure all the stuff but basically had to be eliminated, which sounds sounds uh, really harsh, but that is that is that is a part of God that we need to understand that. He is the sovereign one, and he, he knit every single thing together, and it is all by his will that we all exist. Every breath is a breath of mercy. And it all belongs to him, and he answers in perfect just judgment, and he, he answers mercifully. So when God says, I, this guy needs to be eliminated now, they, they eliminate him and his family, fear falls on the camp because they just had to kill one of their own. And Joshua was the man to lead it. He's like, this, this guy has to go. His family has to go. But before this, the, the people feared and recommitted again when they saw this, this thing happen in their camp. The people repented. And so the story here, how did God find out about this sin of Achan? This time when Achan decided he was going to take the things that God had devoted to destruction and, and identify themselves, hide them in his tent, in his place where he lived. The reason they found out about it, Achan was feeling pretty good that he, he, he that maybe it had been, uh, it slipped everybody else's attention. He had it in his tent they went a few days. He probably thought he was going to die like maybe the first night when he stole it. And then, and then the few days go by, nobody really notices. Um, and then something strange happens. It says in verse two, Joshua sent men from Jericho to AI. So they're in Jericho. They took it over. The walls fell down. They, they took the city. 
and he and he sends some men, some spies, you know, from from Jericho, from where where they are now, to a, a town called Ai, and it's spelled A I. It says, "Go and spy out the land," and the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, "Don't have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai." Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So he sends out his spies. Some of his maybe military strategists come back, and they're like, oh, man, dude, that this town is small, and it's not going to take like a huge military effort to get rid of these guys. This, this should be an easy one. Um, you know, these huge military campaigns are taking a toll on everybody. Can we just have most of these guys sit back while we send in our main guys to go take care of business? Joshua thinks it's a good idea. He says, so about 3,000 men went up from there and they've, um, okay, so verse four, 3,000 men went up out of the 30,000. And they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So this is something they had not experienced yet. They hadn't, they hadn't experienced defeat unless they had, you know, it was it was when they decided to try to take the land. <laughs> they came out of the land and said, nah, we can't go in there. God says, all right, good. I'm not going to give it to you guys anyway. I'm going to give it to this next generation. Then they say, you know what? We changed our mind. Let's go ahead and take the land because we don't really want to be walking around uh, for the rest of our lives in this desert. They try to take the land themselves. And they get they get annihilated, right? So that's like the one time. It's like the one time they went in and tried to do it themselves and 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 got defeated. Well, under Joshua's le- leadership, they were they were taking cities, they were taking towns, they were taking them miraculously. Jericho, the wells, the walls just fell down. Imagine that scenario: where you're in a city, thinking that your greatest strength is are these walls, and there's nothing that these little Israelites with their horns are going to do about it. They blow their horns one day after doing it, you know, seven days. The walls literally come crumbling down at the sound of these tr- these these uh, trumpets and horns, and the city is taken. So things are coming. Pretty fast. Everybody's like on board with with God's plan here. They come to a little town. They say, ah, just send up a few guys up there. They get up there. They get routed. They get chased down. 36 of them get killed. They're just trying to escape for their lives. And they come back to Jericho. And they they say, we just got routed. We just got destroyed. There was no favor of the Lord on us at all. In fact, it seemed like the Lord was with our enemies. And everyone feared, like, what is going on? Like, um, God, if, if you decide to change the plan here, there's nothing we can do to remedy the situation. We're completely powerless. We're completely powerless. 
So Joshua, you know, lays down before the Lord and he says, uh, verse seven, he has this thing kind of like Josh, uh, Moses did. He, he kind of carries the same, the same spirit of the relationship that, uh, that Moses enjoyed and says, alas, O Lord God, you've brought this people over the Jordan. Um, oh, sorry. Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us the, give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? <laughs> Joshua just knows like, right, how to get an answer from God. Like, boom. <laughs> he's like, he's like uh, you know what? We, if this is going to be the scenario that we're just going to get killed by our enemies, we'll just keep us in the wilderness, right? I mean, we, we, we were alive out there. And then if we come in here, we get cut off. Your name is no longer in the earth. What are you going to do for your great name, God? Joshua knows God's regard for his name. So God answers him. He says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, just what does that say about God and his relationship with, with Joshua? He's like, hey, man, just get up. <laughs> why, did you, why did you even fall down in the first place? All you had to do was ask me. All you had to do was say something to me, and I was gonna, I was gonna tell you what was going on. But since you've asked this way, I'll answer. But I say, get up, don't lay down like that. We're we're gonna have a conversation. He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied, and put them into their belongings. That's why the people of Israel can't stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So God is very firm. He's saying, I'm not going to compromise. I know you guys are going to think this is mean. I know you guys are going to think this is harsh, but I'm not going to compromise this. This is a huge state. This is my glory. This is who I am. This is part of the deal. I am holy. And that's what you need to really understand is I am holy and you are not, but I'm taking you by the hand and making you holy. But when you want to be holy, that means you have to turn your back on the unholy. Turn your back on the things that God has devoted for destruction. See, the name of Achan, it means trouble. And trouble is the word for tribulation. Tribulation means heightened trouble. 
It just it it's just another degree of trouble. So when we hear of Achan, we can make a connection to a tribulation. And a tribulation or the trouble that comes is coming because we need to understand that God is holy and He is making us holy. And we must turn our backs to the things that He has devoted to destruction. Or He says, I won't be with you anymore unless you turn your back on those things. And so, when Joshua finds out that there is a devoted thing, it's, it's, it's only like a matter of time before he sniffs it out and finds out it's Achan, that Achan has taken some devoted things, hidden it into his tent, and buried it there. And when they dug it up, they found it, they found the devoted things. They basically brought them up to the Valley of Achor, And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today, and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord returned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble. So if we understand Joshua is one who foreshadows Christ and we find out that the people of God are compromised because of sin and Joshua leads the people to evict the devoted things. And when they evict the devoted things, God turns to them with a new plan. And that plan we, we, we find playing out in Joshua chapter 8. And I think I've gone long enough now that I'm, I hesitate to even try to enter into chapter, the next chapter here. There's too much, and I want to hit a number of points on, on this chapter that I, I dare not try to jam them into this, this episode. I just wanted to kind of give a brief overview of, of the battle of AI in Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 8, you're going to find out in the next episode that Joshua chapter 8 is the most accurate prefiguring of Revelation 19 that you can find in the entire Bible. I really believe that if you look 
at Joshua 7 and 8 as an entire story that you find profound parallels in the account of Revelation chapter 19. That's the big idea that that I, I'm trying to get across here, and I hope I do get across here, that Joshua was a type to point towards the greater Joshua, and the Joshua of chapters 7 and 8 have great um, parallels and insight into Revelation chapter 19, and many of the other uh, chapters in Revelation as well. Um, so I'm going to go ahead, I'm just going to leave it there for this episode, and I'm just going to say thanks for joining me, and um, please join me again um, on the next episode of Babylon Singularity. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you. And... I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.